You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Custer, and the editor of Campus. For this episode, I caught up with Ashok Goel, a professor of computer science and human-centered computing at Georgia Tech, as well as the chief scientist with Georgia Tech's Center for 21st Century Universities. You may have heard the conversation I had with Ashok at the end of last year talking about the possibilities of artificial intelligence and machine learning for higher education. And since so much has changed with the arrival of ChatGPT and generative AI systems, we decided to get Ashok back onto the podcast to help us understand these new developments and how they will alter the very foundations of teaching and learning in higher education. Ashok, welcome back to the Times Higher Education podcast. Nice to see you again. Thank you, Sarah. Good to be here. We spoke last, I believe, in September of 2022, just two months before ChatGPT was released on the world, and and oh, how young and innocent we were. Uh, just to recap, since then, OpenAI has released ChatGPT4, Google has released its own version, Bard, Microsoft has developed Copilot. As an AI expert, scholar, someone who's dedicated his life to this, how how are you processing uh, everything that's happened since the last time we spoke? Great question, Sarah. I think there are two sides to it. Uh, one side has to do with the potential users of uh, generative AI, chat GPT, and so on. And what exciting time it is to be in AI for that. Uh, uh, the number of uh, applications one can think of, and I'm sure we'll get to that in a bit, um, is just huge. Um, and I, I read about a new application almost every day. So very, very exciting, thrilling time. Uh, on the other side, there is the issue of whether chat GPT or generative AI are on their way to human level intelligence. And there, there's a lot more debate, a lot more discussion. Um, it's not, certainly it's an engineering marvel, truly an engineering marvel, just, just uh, such a joy to play with it, a, a pleasure. Um, but it's not entirely clear that it's on the path to human level intelligence. Hmm. Say more about that. So for a long time, for about 60 years, uh, since the dawn of AI actually, um, AI researchers have been very interested in building human level artificial intelligence, sometimes it's called AGI for artificial general intelligence. And there has been a lot of debate about how do we get there and whether every step that we are making in AI is in fact getting us closer and closer to that goal. Now. ChatGPT works on a purely statistical association method. So here is how what ChatGPT does. Um, if you give it some certain number of words, uh, say 50 words, one after the other, um, which are coherent text, so these are not randomly selected words, it could be a paragraph, for example, it could be a story, then ChatGPT is very good at predicting the 51st word, the next word. And it does so with great amount of accuracy and precision, and that's where the sort of fun lies. Um, and the reason why uh, Microsoft's Copilot works so well with programming is also because programming is also language. Uh, programming languages are also languages, just like uh, um, they are simpler forms of natural languages like English and Spanish. Uh, 
So for language, it's very, very powerful at predicting the next word. But the way it does it is, it does not understand the meaning of any of the words. It does not understand the story. But it has been trained on a very large corpus of text, very, very large corpus of text. So that given any sequence of words, it's able to predict the next one. Now, that raises real questions. Is that how human mind works? Um, is it that your intelligence and my intelligence is simply about predicting the next word without understanding any word? Uh, we would like to claim, humans would claim, that they actually understand something about these words. They understand what the stories mean that we tell each other. And it's not just a sequence of words and you and I can predict the next word. You know, when we were children, we used to play the game. Uh, I could say a partial sentence and then um, my teammate could predict what I'm going to say next, right? I mean, so that was, uh, but even there as children, we understood something about the story. That's what enabled us to predict what the next thing is. Chad GPT doesn't understand anything. It just can predict it based on statistical association. And that has raised a lot of questions. I think the consensus in the AI field right now is that ChatGPT, a marvelous engineering feat as it is, is likely not on the path to human-level intelligence. However, that being said, uh, and I know that you've you've said that it's it's a marvel of engineering um, at. Uh, Duke University's Emerging Pedagogy Symposium uh, in April, you gave a talk that was called Teaching and Learning in the Age of AI. Um, and in that talk, you said that there's no part of teaching and learning that will remain unmarked by ChatGPT and that educators think of their role as content creation, but ChatGPT can now do that. So the role of teacher has to completely change as a result of this. Tell us a bit more about um, how you think that role is going to develop and evolve. You know, this is something that almost all professors worry a lot um, about their own role. And often we have taken on, as professors, a very pedantic role. Uh, we worry about uh, creating lesson plans. We worry about uh, grading our students' homeworks. We worry about creating homeworks, about creating questions. But what is really interesting about uh, professors, about being a professor, and what students find most useful are not those things. If you think in terms of who are the most influential professors that you have had, that I had, uh, they were not the ones who necessarily graded 50 exams or something of that kind. I don't even remember them. Um, but they were the professors who acted as models, who acted as mentors, with whom I was able to engage in some deep conversations. Uh, conversations that were not even perhaps part of the class, but you know, outside the classroom, some of those interactions occurred. Uh, those are the roles that teachers, good teachers typically play uh, as models, as mentors, uh, as um, co-creators, where students and the professor co-create something new that the professor and the student had not thought about earlier. Uh, those roles will remain. And those roles are the critical roles. Those are the professors that impressed me the most, that, that sort of motivated me and stimulated me. Um, I think many of the more pedantic roles like generating questions and grading answers are probably going to be taken over by ChatGPT or some version of um, tools built on ChatGPT. And that's good. Uh, 
many teachers find that very alarming because it changes their traditional notion of role. But if these teachers were to think about why did they enter the teaching profession, I bet no teacher will say, I entered the teaching profession to grade students' homeworks. That's not why we enter the teaching profession. But that's what we end up doing. Um, I think this will be a release uh, for the teachers and the professors. It will give them a freedom to do what they really want to do, and that is to engage with their students in deep conversations. Hmm. Um, the last time we spoke, uh, you said that most of the problems with AI adoption are, are human problems. They're not necessarily tech problems. It's, it's a cultural problem. Um, ba based on what you've said about how ChatGPT, no, no area of teaching and learning will remain unmarked by ChatGPT, do you still think that's the case, that it is a, a, a human problem in terms of the adoption and the uptake of these technologies? Or is it literally just the wave is coming and you either get on board or get out of the way? Good question, Sarah. I still think it's mostly a human problem. Uh, I think this is what is happening and this will accelerate as we go along. Uh, students are embracing chat GPT and generative AI generally. Uh, they love it. They can uh, learn from it. They can use it. Uh, teachers are alarmed by it uh, because their roles are changing. The staff is worried about it. They are more than alarmed because they see they are a threat to their jobs. The administrators are in a wait-and-see attitude, as always. Uh, they wait to see, you know, which way the trends are, then they, um, then they uh, jump on it. So I think we are in a strange situation where uh, students are pushing for it. Uh, teachers will ultimately adapt to it. The staff will probably oppose it. Uh, and the administration will go with wherever the momentum is. Hmm. Okay, so your sense of it is that um, people will eventually adopt this and perhaps it will be a, a student-led movement more so than other developments in technology in higher education thus far? That's my sense, yes, Sarah. Uh, I think this is going to be very much student-led. Uh, teachers will adapt to it. Teachers are adapting to it. But all of us, you know, have a notion of our own jobs, a notion of who we are, our own identity, or what we do in our job. And it's so ingrained among teachers to think in terms of content generation, question generation, exam grading, um, as, as the central tenets of what we do. And we don't think in terms of engaging with students as being the core of what we do, of, of, of uh, stimulating their thinking of, um, but that really is what teaching and professorship is all about. You also said in that um, Duke presentation that um, we're going to have to change our mindset of what it means to be educated. Yeah, Sarah, uh, that's a really uh, interesting point. Well, um, humans are tool users. We are tool users. We have been twenty dawn of humanity. We have been tool users. We have been tool uh, builders and tool designers as well. Uh, AI is a tool. Now, every time there is a new tool that comes along, um, education changes. So when writing came along, education changed. When um, computers came along, education changed. When printing press came along, education changed. Now you have a new tool. Um, what does it now mean to 
for example, write stories. ChatGPT can do it with you, for you, and you can do it in conjunction with ChatGPT. Um, what does it mean to make uh, art of a particular kind? Uh, there certainly will be artists, but now artists will be working a lot more with ChatGPT and generative AI. Um, I think what we are going to see is a lot more emphasis on what is the core of humanity, of being human, um, which is humanities, arts, uh, which is empathy, which is creativity, which is curiosity. Uh, those are the kinds of things that in a typical classroom don't get addressed as much. Uh, and we sort of end up doing very, very routine kind of stuff. Um, so I think there are going to be two, two changes. That's, that's my sense. One change is that humanities and fine arts will flourish. Uh, and the reason they will flourish is because many of the technical things will keep on getting more and more automated or semi-automated. Uh, and the second is that within each classroom, the sort of what makes us special, things like creativity, curiosity, critical thinking, those will, will get emphasized. The teacher's role will change now. So teachers will start thinking about how do I now help my students think big ideas? How do I help them be creative? And the question answering part will become mundane. So do you see perhaps a resurgence of the, the humanities that have in the past few decades been sidelined for STEM fields? Very much so, very much so. So if you think about as, as, as AI keeps on progressing and more and more uh, tasks, uh, tasks get automated, what tasks will really remain? Uh, so, you know, one prediction, for example, this is by uh, Kai-Fu Lee. Um, one prediction is that there is going to be a huge demand for humans who can help uh, with the address the loneliness problem. You know, there is a huge loneliness problem. The U.S. Surgeon Journal recently talked, wrote an article about the loneliness problem. Um, now, that is not something that a machine can address. Um, that is something that requires human company. Um, those are the, that requires empathy. That requires uh, being able to identify with someone else. Uh, that requires being able to walk in someone else's shoes. Those machines cannot do that. Uh, that's humans can do that, and those kind of jobs will now flourish. But that requires a different kind of skills than answering questions uh, in in some particular class. We've spoken a lot, Ashok, about um, the the issues around AI uh, in terms around in terms of equity bias in the data sets that it's it's drawing upon. I wonder if, um, as a developer of these systems yourself, I wonder if there's a way to design some of that stuff out of them, especially when we're talking about equity and and accessibility and kind of uh, with rich Western nations having access to this or uh, digital divides. Is there a way to design some of that, uh, those discrepancies of, of users and bias and equity um, out of them? Or am I just being naive? That's a really big challenge, uh, Sarah. Um, it's not just a question of rich Westerns, uh, Western nations. Even within Western nations, they're elites. They are social, cultural, economic, political elites. Um, and these... Um, machines that we are building um, are in the image of the elites. Um, they naturally are because 
Um, that's how that's the kind of data they are trained on, and the trainers also come from the part of the same elite. Um, so it's a huge problem. So that's one set of problems: uh, data and biases. Another set of problems, uh, as you know, it has to do with hallucinations. Uh, so this ChatGPT and other generative AI programs hallucinate, which is very very troubling. The reason it is very troubling is that. I was talking about, we were talking about um, changing role of teachers. But one constant that will remain is uh, teachers are very mindful about not giving false information to their students. Uh, I am a very bad teacher if, if I'm giving misinformation to my students. Um, but if, chat, if I'm using ChatGPT and ChatGPT is hallucinating and um, giving all kinds of information um, that's that is incorrect, then that's a disservice to our students. And that has um, made a lot of people pause and say, how do we use ChatGPT in such a way that it does not do any hallucinations? There is no simple answer to that question. I understand that Google and Microsoft and so on are, are working on that problem. Um, in our own lab, we have done a little bit of work on that, and I don't know whether you want to get into that now or later, uh, but I can tell you what uh, what what. Sure, tell tell us about it now. So um, several years back, uh, Sarah, we had built a virtual teaching assistant called Jill Watson. Uh, at that time, the problem was that I was teaching this online class, um, and the online class might be taken by uh, several hundred students, and they might ask several thousands questions uh, on a discussion forum over the semester, and I didn't have the time to answer several thousand questions. Um, so um, this, I was an AI researcher. I was This was a class in AI, so why not build an AI assistant that could automatically answer those questions? And Jill Watson, in fact, did answer automatically a good fraction of those questions. But now that ChatGPT has come along, it occurred to us that we could use ChatGPT as the backend uh, to make to increase the power of Jill Watson. So Jill Watson can now become more conversational. Its accuracy and precision can improve, and that's what we did. Um, and in fact, Jill Watson is now much more powerful thanks to ChatGPT in the backend. But it was the same problem for us, hallucinations. Um, in fact, when we tried Jill Watson based on ChatGPT, what we found was that ChatGPT often gave incorrect answers. So uh, in one experiment, we asked it, what is Vera, V-E-R-A? Uh, and Vera for us meant uh, the name of a uh, AI system, and it went to ChatGPT went into Vera LO and so on, um, into, into the plants Vera LO. And, so, so that was uh, uh, very, very disturbing. So what we thought then was that instead of thinking about ChatGPT helping Jill Watson, let's think in the other direction also, Jill Watson helping ChatGPT. So that the synergy of the two helps not only Jill Watson become more accurate, but also ChatGPT give uh, fewer hallucinations. So this is what we did. Um, as um, a question comes in, uh, Jill Watson, at the front end, initially says that the answer is likely to be found in these documents. So it's able to say, instead of all the potential documents, it can uh, identify where the answer is likely to be found. Then it hands over both the question and the documents to ChatGPT. ChatGPT finds the answer and Jill Watson returns it. 
Now, actually, on the post-processing side, also, Jill Watson tries to verify whether the answer ChatGPT is giving is a answer based on the documents that Jill Watson has suggested to it. And we have found uh, that this helps reduce the hallucinations enormously. It does not reduce it to zero, uh, but it's uh, both the frequency and the seriousness of, uh, seriousness of hallucinations drops a lot. So, so this turned out to be a really interesting experiment. We have introduced this Jill Watson based on ChatGPT uh, in three classes this semester uh, at Georgia Tech. It's being taken by about 500 students. Uh, and it's a really interesting experiment uh, because these are computer science students. So the moment they, we say there's Jill Watson running in this class, they immediately try to break it. Uh, it, for them, it becomes a challenge and they try to hack it. Uh, so it's a really good stress test. And it seems to be working quite well so far. That, that's fascinating. I've heard you describe the the Jill Watson chat GPT partnership before. And I think it's absolutely fascinating that you're using two AI systems to work together. Um, many of the uh, leaders in the private sector, Google, Intel, OpenAI itself, um, have kind of left the heavy lifting of establishing um, ethics or ethical use of AI squarely on the doorstep of higher education. You guys have, have clearly found a way to, to do that in a very small way using Jill Watson to kind of check the homework of ChatGPT. Um, is higher education up for the task though in terms of being the neighborhood watch or, or I don't want to go as far as say police, but to put in those buffers to make sure that not only is AI being used in an ethical way and that those biases are being checked, but that also any future iterations of it will be done in an ethical way. Is, is that even fair? Is that even possible for higher education to do that? That's a really important question. My first inclination is to say, no, there is nothing in high, higher education uh, which acts as that kind of um, verification or validation method. There is no agency, there are no set of norms. There are values, but no norms or standards. Um, and so that's a big problem. Um, it, one of the results is likely to be that AI will force higher education to start thinking in these directions. Uh, it hasn't had, you know, for professors, we have that particular kind of mechanism. So um, uh, my home institution, for example, has about 1,200 professors, and there are mechanisms where if, we should, if, if a professor does something unethical, then there are faculty senates and so on, faculty committees which can check whether a professor is behaving properly or not. But there is, insofar as I know, no mechanism or authority or norms and uh, standards to check for AI's ethics, but I think that's, that's going to come. Uh, this is going to come for another reason too, Sarah. Um, AI is now permeating not just the classroom in higher education, but is permeating almost every activity in higher education. So um, college admissions, AI is beginning to help. Uh, student aid, AI is beginning to help. Housing, food, and almost all the aspects of it uh, that one can imagine AI is beginning to uh, penetrate that. That's good. But it also raises the same kind of ethical questions there too. Uh, will AI, for example, do admissions or assistant admissions in a fair way? Or will it in fact act as, as another filter which is biased in a different way? 
Um, so the questions of bias and fairness that you were raising earlier are now going to scale up because it's not just going to be in the classroom, it's going to be in every sector of higher education. So the plus side is that I think within five years, you will see the dawn of the first AI-powered universities. Uh, by AI-powered universities, I mean where every single activity, process, office, position, job is AI-enabled, uh, AI-augmented. Uh, and that's happening, and it is, you know, you'll see the within five years, this is going to become a major movement. Uh, the flip side, on the other hand, is that now higher education will have to worry about values and norms and standards and ethics, and how do you enforce them uh, in a way that it has not had to worry about earlier. Adjacent to that question is um, just about the development of these systems. And I read somewhere that um, until 2014, all the significant developments in AI were coming from academia. But in 2022, there were 32 significant industry-produced machine learning models uh, coming out of the private sector compared to just three that were produced by academia. Is it a concern that the big developments in generative AI are coming from the private sector? And will you ever see a day, do you think, whenever universities will be lead leading the development of these systems again? Um, another point of enormous interest to AI researchers, including me, right? So... Uh... Um, I think there are several aspects of this. First, you're indeed right in, in your observation. Uh, the momentum of many new AI inventions seems to have shifted from universities to industry, uh, just as you point out. That raises huge questions. So uh, one of the questions has to do with ethics. When OpenAI released ChatGPT, insofar as I know, they did not conduct any study about the social implications. They did not con conduct any ethical uh, studies. Now, uh, in, a, in university environments, whenever any lab wants to do some new AI, um, they almost always do some study about ethics and social implications. There are conferences devoted to it, but OpenAI did not do anything of that kind, um, nor did Microsoft. In fact, Microsoft did something else that was interesting. Um, you might know that Microsoft had a, a very strong uh, group on fairness. Uh, and just before, or just about the time that Microsoft was about to leave, release BARD, it let go of its entire group on Sorry, you, you said BARD, and Google released BARD. Okay, all right, okay, so, 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 so this was Microsoft, so uh, uh, the BARD was the wrong term, yeah. Okay, okay. okay. But this was definitely Microsoft. Brilliant. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that's one way of dealing with ethics, right? You let go of all of your ethics people. Uh, in that sense, that is very troublesome. Um, it was also a little amusing to then see all the industry leaders go to the White House and the Congress and say, we now need regulation. Well, they themselves are the ones who are not following any of the things that universities have suggested for a long time. Um, uh, and even there, they want regulation for future developments, but they don't want the current technologies to be regulated in any particular manner. So that can also be viewed as, um, you know, I don't want future competition, but don't regulate me, regulate anyone else who might come with a better model. Um, so there are many, many issues to be sorted out. The good part of this is that um, I think finally, 
our political leadership in the United States, in Europe, across the world, in China, for example, uh, is beginning to pay serious attention to these things. Hmm. And that's certainly an area where universities can feed in on the policy level in developing uh, AI policies and, and hopefully creating ethical systems and uh, environments in which these systems will be developed. Great point. I think that's what's likely to happen. Eventually, when these guidelines are created or agencies uh, are created, uh, their academia will have an influence once again. Um, another development since the last time we spoke is Georgia Tech's overall hardcore commitment doubling down on lifetime learning. And I know that you've been a big part of that in your adult learning and online education uh, lab that you head up uh, is a big part of that. Tell me about how AI is going to feed into lifetime learning at Georgia Tech. Well, first of all, uh, I can share this information now uh, with you and with your audience. Uh, Georgia Tech has started a division of lifetime learning. Um, and that division is likely to become a college sometime soon which is a major thing for Georgia Tech because the last time we started a college was 30 years back. So, you know, we don't start colleges uh, every year. Um, in order to be able to do lifetime learning, say from 18 to 80 years old, there is just no way that, uh, given the number of people we are talking about, and given that these are all people um, who may have jobs, who may have families, uh, they're not going to leave their home and workplaces to come to Georgia Tech. We will have to take education to them instead of they coming to places of education. So this is going to be very different from the typical 18 to 22 year old model where people leave their home and for four or five years they come and do some place of education. Uh, now, how do you take education to people where they work and live at very large scales. Now you're not going to, Georgia Tech or any other university is certainly not going to double the number of faculty or anything of that kind because there are no economic resources for that. So AI must be part of the solution. There is just no, no way around it. The only way to do that, uh, to appeal to a much larger segment of the population with the same size of faculty is to augment the faculty um, with AI so that faculty with its existing resources can in fact address the needs of this large segment. Uh, and I think this is going to be a movement across all universities. Georgia Tech is, is just, just, just one example of that. Exciting stuff. I want to prod you a bit more to um, tell us what's coming. You've said in five years time you'll expect to see the AI University, uh, you've mentioned interactive books elsewhere, books that you can ask a question of. You say that's going to be here by the autumn. <laughs> uh, tell us what else is coming and, and what we need to prepare for. Yeah, this is fun stuff, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, fun, slightly terrifying, uh, but yes, nonetheless, less exciting to imagine the possibilities. Well, uh, I will share with you two, three things that we are working on, and I expect all of them to be available to at least some small set of students by in fall, and then larger number of students as we go ahead. One is that you know teachers have these PowerPoint slides. We all teachers use PowerPoint slides and so on. Um, you can't talk to PowerPoint slides. 
But you can imagine now uh, something like Jill Watson backed by ChatGPT, uh, you can ask questions to PowerPoint slides. Um, so um, on slide number 37, the professor said that, uh, isn't this contradictory to what happened in slide number 19? Uh, this reminds me of something that some other professor said in his uh, different presentation. Can you please correlate the two? Uh, counter example, please. So for any, so all of these things should be possible. And that's sort of, that's one set of things that we are working on, um, conversational PowerPoint slides. And are, would that be voice activated or would that be chatting? At the moment so we are- Watson yeah. detect audio? At, at the moment we are focusing on text, but by the end of the year, we want to go to voice and multimodal facility um, because you, know, you should be able to talk to them, literally talk to them in speech rather than in, in, in text. Um, and another thing is, of course, the conversational textbooks. You know, you should be able to get a textbook, uh, put it in your car, uh, you know, some new kind of system in the car. And as you're driving, you can talk to the textbook and say, well, tell me about this concept or how does this relate with some other concept? So just conversational textbooks. There is an old book. You may have read that book. Um, it's called The Diamond Age by Neil Stephenson. Uh, who is a futurist, a science fiction author, um, in which he talks about a protagonist, I think uh, a young girl, her, her name is Nell, and she's sort of born on the wrong side of tracks and so on and so forth. Um, but somehow she gets access to this interactive book. Um, and I think the story begins when she's about nine years old. Um, by the time she is 15, she has learned enough, although she's on the wrong side of the track, she doesn't go to good schools, she doesn't have you know, the usual um, things that the elite, uh, elites have, but she becomes sophisticated enough, by 15 she can join the elite, um, and she starts moving into the high, sort of high society. Um, so Neil Stephenson had this vision of a conversational immersive textbooks, and I think we are getting closer and closer to that. Um, so by the end of um, this year, calendar year, uh, my lab, and I, our lab is not the only one we're just working on it, but certainly my lab uh, will have um, at least one conversational textbook. Uh, it gives me goosebumps <laughs> to see uh, what sort of possibilities it has. Exciting, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that you mentioned was uh, multimodal. So, you know, using speech to ask questions and so on. So that is also coming along. I think in terms of other things that we want to think about, uh, in talking in terms of generative AI, chat, um, GPT, I want to go back to the old point that we were making about loneliness. Um, that loneliness occurs not just among the elderly, it occurs, you know, young people are lonely too. Um, often our students are very lonely. We are reading about how the suicide rates among teenagers keeps on going up, for example. Um, now, there are many reasons for that, and I'm certainly not an expert in any, any of those areas, um, but at least some of it is because of loneliness. Uh, people feel isolated. They don't feel uh, that they belong uh, anywhere. They don't have sufficient support structure around them. Um, I think an interesting set of uh, things that people have been into explore is, can we use AI, including generative AI, to provide that kind of support structure, to give people a sense of belonging, to give people a sense of connectedness, 
Um, and that, of course, can again work for anyone from 18 to 80, not just the elderly, but for uh, young college students too. Um, so as an example, consider that you take a class. We were talking about 18 to 80 years old. You are in a class. There are 10,000 students in the class. They're distributed all across the world, and you don't know any one of them. Now, you're supposed to do well in that particular class. There is no one to talk to. There is no teacher. There is no peer. But, you know, learning is a social process. It's an emotional process. It's not just a cognitive process. Um, I think teachers sometimes make the mistake. This goes back to the role of teachers. Teachers always think of learning, often think of learning as a purely cognitive process. They emphasize, you know, these lesson plans and quizzes and so on and so forth. They forget sometimes that learning is really is emotional and a social process. If the students are feeling connected emotionally, that's all a teacher needs to do. The student will then do most of the learning on his or her own. Um, um, so, but often that emotional connection is not there. But imagine a new uh, generation of AI agents that can connect people in this 10,000 people in online and can say, uh, for example, um, Amy, you live in Singapore, uh, you have two children who go to elementary school, um, you probably um, are hard pressed to find chunks of time when to do this particular work. Uh, and there is John who lives in Chicago, and he also has two, two children who go to elementary school. Uh, maybe you can connect with each other. Wow. It kind of does the networking for you. It does the networking for you. Um, so uh, based on what kind of messages you post, what kind of needs you have, what kind of personalities you may have. Um, and I think that can be very, very powerful. Um, that's one of the things where AI is going to start um, making more and more of an influence as a social, motivational, emotional agent, not just as a cognitive tool. Ashok, will you come back on the podcast in like six months? Time oh, and, I'll be happy help to. Help us Thank think about all this me. stuff and, and tell us more. <laughs> I, have, I have a feeling it's going to be a totally different world by then as well. Yes, things are changing very rapidly. Thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful catching up with you. Thank you, Sarah. Bye-bye.